Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh leads us through the book of Leviticus. During this sermon, we learn that even though we are in the New Covenant, Leviticus was necessary and why we need atonement. You can join us by turning your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Atonement and Holiness. Leviticus chapter 4, we are continuing our uh, journey through the storyline of the Old Testament. Six month journey through uh, looking at the big theological truths of foundations that God lays there in order for us to understand what God has done in Christ. And just week after week, I, I hope that you are seeing that without an understanding of these truths, we'll be greatly lacking in understanding the gospel itself. Um, God's will for us in this new covenant and the truths that he teaches there. So let's read a portion of this. Leviticus chapter 4 and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. So Leviticus 4 beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty, when the sin which they have, be they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all its fat from it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. He shall also do with the bull just as he did with the bull of the sin offering, 
Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Then he is to bring out the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. We'll stop there if you'll bow with me for a word of prayer. Well, Lord our God, Father, I just want to cry out one last time and ask for your help as we study these things. Father, where we are this morning is one of the more difficult places to understand as we study through your word. And so I ask God for the gift of clarity. I ask God that you give me help to understand your word, Lord, in myself. And then God, the ability to explain it, to give the right meaning, the right sense. Father, you have filled this section of your word with beautiful truths bold truths, scary truths, Lord, things that show us, show us yourself, show us your holiness. God, we desperately need to see your awesome holiness. So God, I ask that you help us in that. Help us, Lord, in seeing your holiness to see our sin and just how far beneath you we are, how unworthy of you we are. And Lord, just how amazing of a thing it is that we have been redeemed in Christ. That the blood of Christ has washed us clean, so clean, that we can come into your very presence in heaven. Father, show us these things. Give us help, Lord. So I I ask, oh Lord, help me to teach, help me to be useful. Lord, bless your people to be receptive, all of us to be captivated by your word. And Lord, please cause this time to be beneficial and all the truths that ought to be taught right now, please God, cause it to be seen. Lord, we love you. Pray these things through Christ. Amen. Um, Our God uses many illustrations to preach truths. We see Jesus do this all the time in the New Testament with the parables and Uh, Just taking things of this earth and then showing spiritual principles, eternal truths through them. And sometimes those illustrations that God gives are pretty graphic. Really, the whole of the sacrificial system. So, So when we say that, the sacrificial system is that part of the old covenant where God instructed priests to slay animals, and just as we read in chapter 4, sprinkle that blood, pour that blood, offer up the animals, all of it is meant to be a very graphic illustration. I remember one particular day that I came to understand this illustration and understand the book of Leviticus better than I ever had. A friend of mine who's a farmer had invited me over to help him butcher one day. He had several large hogs that he was going to process that day. And even though hogs were forbidden in the old covenant, we still understand what's going on here with some of what I'll say. He walked me through the process, showed me each step. The very first step is a pretty dramatic part. I watched. He showed me. We processed out the first one. And when it came time for the second... He told me it was my turn, and he handed me a knife. And this this moment is vividly burned into my memory. I'm not trying to be graphic for the sake of graphic, but as we're going to see today, this is graphic for a reason. The moment is burned into my memory of 
reaching down with that knife. Now, I'm a hunter. I've harvested, skinned, processed out many animals. I'm not squeamish about that, but I want to tell you this. It is a very different kind of thing to harvest an animal that's at a distance than to do it with your own hands. And I remember bending down, inserting this knife into its throat, feeling it tense and, and recoil, look at me with wild, terrified eyes, finish out that slit, watch, it, watch its blood spray onto the ground as it writhed and fought to breathe. And I just, at that moment, like everything in my stomach felt wrong. Now, I, I know the theology. I know that God has tell us, told us that he has given us the animals for our use. He tells us that there's nothing evil about this. But I'm telling you right now, I felt guilty. Everything about it just sort of made me feel sick and icky, like I needed to confess a sin. Like I just took a life with my own hands. And I thought on that day before we even finished out all that process, I understand the book of Leviticus better than I ever have. I get the graphic drama of what it is to pour out lifeblood on the ground. You know, we read about the sacrificial system, the making of offerings and you know, we read about, we even teach it in the little children's time. It can seem so clean, so we can be so detached. But listen, friends, the reason why God gave this and the people for 1,600 years lived in this kind of worship with the millions and millions of gallons of blood that was poured out over this period was that God was showing us our need for atonement and you, that you and I need to know that. Does it make sense that whenever God designed this system, he wasn't thinking of what would be fun? When God was up in heaven designing this system, he, he was not thinking, you know what, what could I come up with where everybody would go home just feeling, you know, just feeling good, <laughs> just feeling good about themselves today. No, the, when they would engage in this worship, and watch an animal's throat get slit. Can you imagine a little eight-year-old boy watching it for the first time? Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the sounds? Can you imagine the sight? No, friends, God gave this for a reason to preach some truths that you and I desperately need to know. And whenever they would engage in that worship, that little eight-year-old boy saw that blood spill on the ground. At that moment, he understood more the awful nature of his sin. Friends, here's the reality. Your sin is so awful, so eternally defiling, blood has to spill. Either yours or someone else's in your place. Ultimately, that, that sacrifice for sins, the one made for all time, was made in Christ. As Christ hung on the cross, 
And he was the Lamb of God sent for the salvation of God's people. And his blood flowed from his wounds. That's the ultimate sacrifice and the last one that we will ever need. But before that day came, before Jesus came and made the ultimate sacrifice, there were truths that we needed to know. And those truths are preached in the law that God gave at Mount Sinai. Those truths are preached in the book of Leviticus. We've been tracking through this storyline of God's work of redemption in the world. We have seen God make a special people, deliver those special people, bring them into the wilderness, Mount Sinai, make a covenant with them and give them a law. We've been talking about this law for some time now. We've, we've made the statements. Some of those laws, when we read them, make a lot of sense to us. Jesus has made them a part of the new covenant in Christ. We saw that another part of that law had to do with justice uh, for that nation. And so it applies to us in the sense of us understanding justice. But then we've been saying this as well. There's another section of that law, a part of that law that we oftentimes call the ceremonial law, a part of that law that just seems confusing to us. Lots of strange sounding rituals like the blood sacrifice that we've read about here but dozens and dozens, dozens of other individual rules that God gave. And one of the things we have been seeing is this. We've been asking this question, why did God give this section? God gave this every single part Every single part of the ceremonial law, all of the little rules that can, that can seem confusing, all in some way preach truths that you and I need to understand in order to understand Christ and the gospel. Now, one of the things also that we said last week that we are building upon is this. There's one, one part of the ceremonial law that is at the heart of it. And if we understand the, this question and this answer, we'll get the central idea of the ceremonial law. And it is this. If God was going to come and dwell amongst his people, if the people were going to be near God, and this God is holy, 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 if this God is so holy, there are names of God your ears are not allowed to hear. There are names of God our lips are not allowed to speak. If he is so holy that when sin comes into his presence, he breaks forth and destroys it, then how can this God go and live in the midst of a sinful people? The answer to that question is provisions would need to be made. And those primary provisions would be there ha God designed a way for the people to be protected from his holiness and God designed a way for the people to have atonement for their sins. Now, again, we're always pointing forward to Christ. The ultimate way that God has met all of these provisions is through the effective sacrifice of Christ once and for all time. But we don't understand that unless we understand the truths that are taught here. And so God has given the book of Leviticus specifically to preach God's holiness and our need for atonement. 
So friends, you and I are no longer under the law of the book of Leviticus, but you do need to know that the book of Leviticus was written for you. It was written for you and I in this new covenant. Don't just think about it as, well, it was for them and now God gave me something new. God intends you and I to understand the truths he taught there in order to understand what he is doing now. If you want to jump to one verse with me in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. Let me help you kind of understand how the book of Leviticus is for us. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 16 with me. Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, those rules that he was talking about, festivals, new moon, Sabbath days, those are the kinds of things that the book of Leviticus deals with. So notice a couple things he says there. Number one, we're not under it any longer. No one is to act as your judge. You're not to keep those things. Jesus fulfilled that covenant and that law. We are in a new covenant with a new law, the law of Christ. So we see that. But did you notice what he called those things? He called them a shadow. A shadow and the substance is Christ. Meaning this, friends, the book of Leviticus is meant to preach Christ. Every part of that ceremonial law, the end of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, it is designed by God to preach Christ. He says the word shadow there of the real thing. If your friend Jimmy walks up to you, and it's a sunny day and his shadow is cast onto the sidewalk. You don't talk to the shadow and be, what's up, Jimmy? Okay, you don't talk to the shadow. Why? What is the shadow? The shadow is the dark, unclear, vague image of the real thing. Jimmy is the real person. This is what scripture says. The law of Moses, this old covenant that God gave, it's, it's the vague image of the real thing, the ultimate thing that God has done in Christ. The law of Moses and the old covenant was a shadow of the greater things to come. And really, friends, even greater things yet to come in the kingdom that we are waiting for. And many of many, even still today, misunderstand this. Many, there is, there is even still a movement for the last 2,000 years. There's been a movement of trying to hold on to the old covenant, uh, trying to want, want to impose the law that's there on today and things, and it comes from a misunderstanding. But, but listen, friends, the old covenant was sort of like building a basement for a house. You have to build it first, but make no mistake, that's not the point. The point is the house there are foundations that God laid in order to bring about the greater what he has done in 
Christ. And so this section of the Old Testament is a series of sermons preaching truths that we need to know in order to understand Christ. So let's get started through the book and I want to show you some of the ways. It just pained me to have to delete out lots and lots of other things I wanted to tell you. Um, but, but we will look at, at what a section that, that I hope that by the time we're done, you understand how to read Leviticus. That when you read it for yourself, you, you comprehend what's going on here. Let me start by giving you a little bit of an outline of the book. That, that is usually very helpful. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are about various sacrifices and offerings that God instituted. In chapters 8 through 10, it flows very naturally after this and talks about various aspects of the priesthood. The ways that the priests were to handle sacrifices, uh, how they were to minister inside of that tabernacle. In chapters 11 to 15, it contains several purity laws. We'll, we'll talk about what that means when we get there. But things concerning uh, items like leprosy, mold in a house, a few mature kinds of sections in there as well. Chapter 16 and 17 explain the theology behind the blood atonement. We read chapter 17 in our scripture reading. And then chapters 18 to the end, 18 to 27, explain dozens and dozens of various miscellaneous laws. Most of them are ceremonial. And so those sections will be some of what we work our way through. So let's begin here. Let's begin in the first part of the book and look at the sacrifices and offerings in the first seven chapters. So if you're taking notes, uh, point number one will be the sacrifices and offerings. Um, God instituted five kinds of offerings. Five kinds. Chapter one describes what, what they call the burnt offering. And then you move to chapter 2, describes the grain offering. Chapter 3, the peace offering. Chapter 4, the sin offering. Chapter 5, the guilt offerings. And then there's a little bit of explanation in chapter 6 and 7, talking some more about those kinds of things. There was a particular reason or a particular time when each kind of offering was to be, was to be participated in. So for instance, we read chapter 4, which talked about the sin offering. There was a particular time when a sin offering was appropriate. And you saw what was there. If you look at chapter 4 again, first three verses, one of the things that he says there is when there has been unintentional sin. Meaning, sins that were committed and the people didn't realize it at the time. They looked back later and understood, oh, I, I messed up there. I accidentally kind of did that sin. And then there was an offering that was to be made, the sin offering. Other occasions called for other offerings. And if you think about what was described for us there in chapter 4, you got a lot going on. There's a lot that's being preached. The worshiper would bring the lamb or the goat to the priest in order to offer up to God. The worshiper would lay his hands on the head of that animal. Do you see some of the symbolism there? symbolizing the transfer of guilt from the sinner to the sacrifice. That's what was being pictured here. So there would be the laying on of hands and then the priest would take that animal, slit the throat. The blood would be caught. Some of that blood was taken inside the tabernacle. 
sprinkled there on the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The rest of the blood was poured out there by the altar, uh, of, uh, the altar that was outside of the tabernacle. The worshipers were able to watch what happened on the, on the altar of burnt offerings there. It would be poured out, the animal would be processed out, and then burned up. Different uh, offerings were done in some different ways. Sometimes the worshiper would, would actually eat a meal from the sacrifice that was made. And there's sort of this picture of fellowshipping with God, sharing in a meal, consuming the sacrifice that was made on my behalf. Sometimes the priests would be given portions of that meal as part of their payment and such. And with the burnt offering, no one shared in any of the meals, but the entirety of it was burned up as an offering to God. And so let me... Let me mention a few things here, a few points of application, because we're always wanting to ask this question. If this preaches Christ, then what are we supposed to see here? What are ways that this applies to us in the new covenant? Well, number one, I want you to see that God designed the entirety of Israelite life to revolve around the worship of the Lord. Does that preach something? Number two, there is in this, friends, a necessary understanding of how we relate to God. You know, we see so much of this whole concept of people believing they have no obligation towards God. People kind of this with, with this idea that, you know, if I decide to grace God with my presence, then, you know, he needs to be pretty happy that I showed up today. And if I walk in the church building, I'm sure God's up there going, oh, you came. Oh, I was so lonely and I mean you're so great you didn't need to come anyway but I'm just so touched that you can that's not the relationship here friends the relationship of worship is this the worshiper longs for God the worshiper wants God the worshiper wants to be right with God wants to be near God and I'm 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 coming with this offering in the sense of saying in effect God you own everything you have graciously given me out of your bounty and out of what you've entrusted to me. I want to bring something of value. I want you to be pleased. I want to know you. I want to draw near. I want to be right with you. I long for you to look on me and be pleased. Do you see the relationship of humility and seeking the treasure? The modern man does not understand this kind of relationship. Modern man often sees God and then, you know, you know, just a half step down, there's, there's me. Friends, what we see here in this concept of the sacrifice and the offering, we have a duty to worship the Lord. And we have an obligation to worship Him in the right way. And we have an obligation to bring to Him a blood sacrifice. In this new covenant, this is the next point of application. In this new covenant, we still make offerings, and there are still sacrifices. So turn with me to the New Testament, if you will. Uh, jump to Hebrews chapter 13 for a moment, very quickly. He Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 15 there and the way that this is worded. By the way, the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is greater than the old covenant. The ways that the old covenant has been fulfilled and a new covenant has been uh, brought by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 15. Through him, that's Jesus, through him then, 
let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. In this new covenant, there are still sacrifices, but they're different. Jump to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, read verse 1. Many of you know and love this verse. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see the beautiful picture there, friends? An offering was something that was devoted to God. And in this new covenant, whenever we worship the Lord, the same principle still remains. You have not worshiped unless you have made an offering to God. There is a way that we must offer up to God something of value, something that cost us, something that shows that we count him as a treasure. But the new covenant says that because the blood of Christ has been made as the once and for all sacrifice, no more is needed. We no longer offer up lambs and goats. In fact, if you did so, you would be breaking the new covenant. You, you would be resisting the will of God. We no longer offer up blood sacrifice because that has been accomplished. The sacrifices that we offer now through Christ is the sacrifice and offering of worship, obedience to the Lord. Every time we leave sin, every time we, we fight and we struggle to obey God, we are offering things up to the Lord. And the greatest offering you can ever make is the offering of your very self, the offering of your life, to come to God with such submission that you say, God, I am yours. Take me and use me. You lead me wherever you want me to go, and I will obey a living and holy sacrifice to God. Uh, point number two, as we walk through the book of Leviticus, let's talk about the priesthood for a moment. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the priest. And so let's think about this. God had consecrated, which is a big word that just means set apart as holy, set apart as devoted unto God. He had made all of the people holy, all of them. But we begin to see in the book of Leviticus that there were levels of holiness. All the people were holy, but out of the holy people, there was a group of them who had been set apart even farther. They had been given sort of, if you will, a higher status of holiness. Now, this can cause some confusion. And here's the reason why. When you and I think about holiness, we generally are thinking about moral holiness spiritual holiness, obedience to God. And the reason why we think that is the Old Testament taught holiness in some different kinds of categories in order to teach us about moral holiness. But in the book of Leviticus, as this is being shown to us, we have a different kind of holiness that's being described here. We might call it um, positional holiness, that there is a sense in which they've been set apart by God, by being called holy, by being called with a kind of title that's there. And so out of all of the people, all of the Israelites who had been made holy, there was one group, the Levites, the priestly tribe that God had chosen, and he set them apart even further in this. And then even amongst the priest, there was still one priest who had a 
higher level of status than any of them. And that was the high priest. The high priest. There were certain things that a regular priest could not do, but the high priest was called to. There were certain things that a regular priest wasn't even allowed to touch. That the high priest had the job of fulfilling. God was picturing things in this. So let's ask this question. If Leviticus is meant to preach Christ, then how does this apply to us in the new covenant? First of all, let's ask the question, do we still have priests? Is that still a thing? Well, yes, but it might not be quite how you're thinking. Friends, what we're shown in the new covenant is this. God, God was showing something there that applies to us now in this new covenant. Friends, every believer, every single person who is truly in Christ, you have been made a priest unto God. There is no longer some special class of priests. I know that exists in several different kind of versions of Christianity and things. It exists in some of these different kinds of denominations. I know that that's there, but friends, that is not what the new covenant shows. And if you don't believe me, you can see this. Read the book of Hebrews for yourself. Read the book of Hebrews for yourself and see how the Bible shows a fulfilling of this and a bringing of the new. And friends, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and Revelation 1 and Revelation 5, we're told that Jesus has made all of us believers priest unto God. In fact, that's the significance of this word saint. And again, it's really frustrating that we have to do like some unlearning in order to show what the Bible says. Because you got some of these various groups and denominations out there that use the word priest and use the word saint in a way that the Bible does not. So friends, understand this. Every believer, we are all on an equal playing field. There is no category that is higher than another. We are all priests. We are all clergy in that sense. That is the little Greek word used. And friends, in some of those groups and denominations, there's like this highest place of the holiest people of history and they're called saints. That is absolutely not how the Bible uses this word. The Bible uses this word to speak of every single Christian. The word literally means holy one. Holy one. In Christ, you have been made a holy one. Friends, you don't need another mediator. The whole reason that the priests were needed in the old covenant is because they were not able to draw as near to God as you and I can in this new covenant. And this is the glory of what Christ has done. The glory of what Christ has done is his salvation is so powerful, so effective. We're brought right into the throne room of God. When you bow to pray, do you know what is happening? You are meeting with the living God. We are engaging with the Almighty right now as we sit in His presence. You have been brought to something deeper and, and, and greater than what existed in the Old Covenant, and there is greater still yet to come. You don't need a human mediator. You need Christ. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That's what Scripture says. Do you see how all this comes out of Leviticus? Friends, out of all the world. You have been brought unto God and you have been made holy if you are in Christ. If you have turned from your sin 
turned from rebellion to come to Christ with a submissive heart that says, I trust you, you are Lord, and I want to be saved, I want to be a part of your people. If you have come to him like this, then you have been made a holy one. And we see this. And we also learn that in this new covenant, we do still have a high priest. But he is not a sinful high priest. He is not a high priest who is merely a man. Our high priest is the God-man. Jesus is the high priest of this new covenant. There will never be a transition to another one. And we have a high priest who both is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, but who has also lived without sin. Christ is the high priest of this new covenant. Well, here's the third part we'll talk about. The purity laws. This is another major point of the book. If the people are to be holy, then what is that going to look like? And one of the confusing things is, is this. God will show some earthly kinds of pictures of holiness, and then God will use all of this to teach the moral holiness, spiritual holiness. Um, but run through a list of verses with me, if you will. Uh, jump to chapter 11 for a second. Uh, jump to 11, uh, verse 44. Uh, verse 43 ends with some of the, the dietary laws, some of the clean and unclean animals that they were eat and not eat. And he says, you know, you're not to render yourselves detestable by eating these things. And look at verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jump to chapter 19, verse 2. 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then he gives more instructions, rules, and laws. Jump to chapter 20, verse 7. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord, your, for I am the Lord your God. And then he continues on. You shall keep my statutes and my laws. Chapter, uh, chapter 21, look at verse 8. You shall consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. And there are more that we could look at. One of the things you start to see is this is a major theme of the book of Leviticus. But did you, did you notice something there? Something that would seem a little strange. The people have been put in a position of holiness, and then God tells them, go be holy. If you think about it, that is exactly the kind of language that's used in the New Covenant. And it can be a little confusing. So the New Covenant, the New Testament will say things like, in Christ you have been sanctified. Now go be sanctified. What? In Christ you've been made holy. Now go be holy. How's that supposed to work? This, this is what we're shown here. In Christ you have been brought to a position You've been devoted unto God. Now live devoted unto God. In Christ, you've been cleansed by His blood. Now live a clean life. We might call it legal cleansing, legal holiness, positional holiness. It's very similar to the way we use the word righteous 
We've been counted as righteous in Christ. We are legally righteous. And then the Bible will say, well, now go live righteous. Now go live holy. Who you are is supposed to be, show how you are to live. Understanding what God has made us is supposed to lead us to how we are live. God's people are to be marked by holiness because our God is holy. And friends, that's the case in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. But what God did in the Old Covenant was teach this holiness through many metaphors. God gave many laws that were never meant to be eternal. But, but here's an important phrase. They give our minds categories for understanding holiness. If you didn't write that down, I, let me suggest that you do. And let me repeat that phrase. The laws that God gave in the old covenant were meant to give us categories for understanding holiness. Let me see if I can illustrate here. When you talk to people in the world about sin, they have a way that they view it. They have definitions that they may give, if they even use it at all. I, I've heard from a recent uh, collegiate evangelist that he is now ministering with people who do not even know what the word sin means. That's a scary thought. But whenever you talk with folks and they describe sin, they may describe it in kinds of terms like mistakes, little white lies, categories that are unbiblical. God gives you images categories, metaphors that he wants you to associate with sin, like leprosy. Does that make sense? Book of Leviticus deals with leprosy. That is God giving you a category in your mind for thinking about what sin is. So for instance, in chapter 11, God gives the dietary laws about foods that were considered clean or unclean. You can walk through that list sometime and you really ought to read it. It's good. Uh, read through it and see all the things that they were not allowed to eat. The most famous we know about is they were not allowed to eat pork. They were not allowed to eat shellfish. They were not allowed to eat. And God goes through all these descriptions of things. And you know, we've already studied in the new covenant. This has been fulfilled. Jesus declared all foods clean. You can go home today, fry you up some bacon. It is totally legit in this new covenant, okay? God, God has, in Acts chapter 10, all of this is explained to us. God explained this to the church because the early church had some confusion over these things. So, so if that is the case, if it's not an eternal principle that like pork is evil, then why did God give it? Friends, all kinds of debates have raged over history as to why God did this. The most popular misunderstanding is one you may have heard. It's the one that says, well, God gave them the healthy foods to eat. You know, pork is bad for you. That's why you shouldn't be eating it. It's high in cholesterol. You know, things like that. That's missing the point. And listen, it doesn't hold up consistently through the passage. Okay, Rabbit is very good for you. Rabbit was forbidden under that old covenant. It doesn't have to do with the health of the matter. I mean, of course, not, God's not going to tell you to go eat something poisonous. Okay, But that's not the point of why he gave what he gave. A lot of misunderstandings in history about this. Have you ever heard the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness? Have you ever thought that that was in the Bible? It's not. That came from a misunderstanding of the ceremonial cleanliness from the book of Leviticus. By the way, if you read some of the old fairy tales from hundreds of years ago, you will occasionally see some of these superstitious kinds of belief about Levit Leviticus come out. All kinds of misunderstandings. What you have God doing is teaching truths through earthly illustrations. 
You have God preaching messages, giving us categories, showing us vivid illustrations of holiness, the clean and the unclean. One of the things that God says in Leviticus 10.10 is I'm showing you how to make a distinction between what is clean and unclean. I, the Lord your God, make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. Friends, just like in the moral realm, God makes a distinction between what is good and what is evil, between what is righteous and what is unrighteous, between what is holy and what is common. Do we not constantly battle the world speaking about matters of morality in terms of it's all relative, it's all gray, it's all neutral? Here we have God showing, I make a distinction between what is right and wrong, holy and common, clean and profane. And then that helps us understand some things like one of the odd, obscure little, little rules that God gave there in Leviticus. The Israelites were not to wear a garment that was woven out of two different kinds of fabric. And does not the Bible spend a great deal of time teaching that you are not to mix what is holy with what is unholy? If you have been made clean, you are not to mix into your life what is unclean. If you have been made holy by God, unclean words are not to proceed out of your lips. Unclean actions are not to be done with your hands. God set those hands apart for Himself. Let's talk for a second here about the, this whole concept of the clean and the unclean. Because it can be a little confusing. I want to help you understand the book here. And we can sometimes mix it up with the holy and unholy. A priest who was holy, he was in a position. But that holy priest could engage in something that was unclean and for a temporary period of time, he would be made unclean. And what that meant was he was not allowed to participate in the worship in any way, shape, or form. He was not allowed to handle the sacrifices, not allowed to eat of the meals. Any Israelite who became ceremonially unclean was not allowed to engage in the worship. By the way, does that preach a sermon to us? Any Israelite who became unclean, you know, God prescribed all, their calendar was full of worship. Meals to be eaten, festivals to be celebrated, offerings and sacrifices, just all the time. And we see God showing some things. Friends, just like here in the Lord's Supper that we're going to take today. You know, the Holy Spirit wrote to the church there at Corinth that some of the people in their congregation died for partaking of it in an unworthy manner. Friends, these exact same kinds of truths are still preached. They're a part of this new covenant. And I'm going to say that some of the greatest problems that we are seeing in the modern church come from a lack of familiarity with the theological foundations that are laid out in the Old Testament and I think particularly in the ceremonial law. Now, under that old covenant, some of the ways that are described in the book that you would become unclean, some of them were avoidable. Like you could go your whole life and never eat one of the unclean animals. You could avoid that the entirety. But there were some ways that were just unavoidable. That just living, you're just going to get unclean in some way. Like for instance, when a husband and a wife were intimate together, the man was not allowed to participate uh, in worship for a day. 
If a man or a woman had, had a wound that oozed in some way, had some kind of a discharge. I, I know it's gross. There's actually quite a bit of that graphic stuff in the book of Leviticus and even some mature parts. But if there was a wound that was oozing, they were ceremonially unclean. And that meant not allowed to participate in the worship. Now realize, they haven't sinned. They haven't done evil. God's not angry with them. But there is something that they cannot control and it has made them unclean. And they needed to be cleansed in order to be brought once again and able to worship. Things like leprosy gave a person, or made a person ceremonially unclean. And by the way, if, if you want what the Bible has, maybe just one of the most vivid illustrations of sin. Leprosy of the heart, which scripture shows we must be cleansed from. Leprous all over your body, spreading and taking control of your life, leaving you unfeeling and numb and causing you to lose some of your humanity. The only way to be cured was by a miracle from God. Friends, that's exactly how the Bible speaks of sin. And there's also significance in the fact that in the New Testament, we see Jesus healing lepers. And how did he do it? Reaching out and touching them. Huge no-no from the book of Leviticus. Lepers were never to be touched. You would pass on the uncleanness. Jesus reaches out and touches them. He doesn't become unclean. They become clean. Do you remember, do you remember the story of the woman who had the, the, the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years? It's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all, all tell this story here. You have this account of the woman who had this condition for 12 years, she had spent all of her money on doctors. For the last 12 years, she had been unable to be intimate with her husband. Parenthesis there, there's a whole sermon in Leviticus here on this section as well. If marriage is made in the image of the greater relationship of God to his people, God will not be intimate with those who are in their uncleanness. This woman had been unable um, to engage in even simple things of life like going over to someone's house and having supper because there were certain restrictions on if a person had a condition like this, you couldn't sit on a seat because then you contaminated and made things unclean. This woman had been branded as unclean. She was not able to live a normal life. So one of the things I want you to see here is not only was she suffering from the physical condition, but also from the fact that she was ceremonially unclean for the last 12 years, she had been unable to participate in the worship of the temple. Now, friends, she could be right with God. She could pray and personally worship. She could seek the Lord on her own. But for the people who love God, being cut off from the corporate worship is a devastating thing. For 12 years, she was unclean. And at a distance, she sees Jesus. Another aspect, just like with leprosy, she wasn't supposed to touch anyone. She wasn't supposed to spread that contamination in any way. But she sees Jesus. She believes that Jesus can heal her. And she says to herself, I'll just, I'll just touch the, the fray of his garment. Maybe she even justified in her mind, I won't really touch him. I'll just, my fingertip, brush the hem of his robe. She sneaks up on Jesus. 
reaches in, just barely brushes her fingertip and instantly she is healed. You got that scene there where Jesus goes, who touched me? <laughs> the apostles are going, Jesus, there's people all over the place. He's like, no, power went out of me. And he looks at her and she's like afraid. What's he going to do? I just touched him. What does he say? Your faith has saved you. Guys, that is beautiful. In an instant, she was cleansed, not only ceremonially, her sins were cleansed before God. Friends, we don't understand the magnitude of some of those kinds of things from the New Testament without understanding the book of Leviticus and what God shows us. So many other parts of the book that we do not have time to get to. I've been greatly helped by looking at the calendar that God gave to Israel. I'm serious. Um, for instance, by the fact that God prescribed numerous weeks of festivals in their calendar, does that help you understand anything about the balance of life and work and rest and joy that God gives? We're not prescribing that as some sort of legalistic, make sure you take this many weeks off, but do you see some things that God gave to the people of joy? Friend, Leviticus is for you. Study it. Read it. Get confused. And then go find answers. Let me kind of end by telling you just, just one of the many rituals that are prescribed in this book. When a leprous man was healed by God, there was a ritual he was to undergo in order to be declared clean and then be able to come back into society. The, the man who had been healed, he was to bring two doves to the priest. The first dove was taken and it was slain over running water and its blood caught. The second dove was, was tied up with a piece of cedar wood, a branch of hyssop, tied up with scarlet string, and then that bundle was dipped in blood and sprinkled onto the man. The dove was then cut free and left to fly away free. Now, it's strange sounding custom, but can you see anything? Can you hear any echoes of the gospel? Can you see any metaphors in a sacrifice made, attached to wood, with hyssop and blood sprinkled? Did you know that when Jesus was on the cross and a drink was offered to him, it was lifted up to him on a branch of hyssop? Did you know that whenever we talk about the storyline of redemption through the Bible, we talk about the scarlet thread that runs through the Bible, tying together all of these hundreds and hundreds of little moments that show Christ? Friends, all of these metaphors run through the book. There is the shadow of Christ in the law of Moses and in what God gave in this book. My friend, you have had or you have this morning a leprous heart. You are in a condition of uncleanness before the living God who made you and you owe your very life. You are unclean before Him and unable to approach Him. But God has made a way for your leprosy to be healed and for your sins to be cleansed. But it is only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood He shed on the cross, the resurrection that He made. And by faith, when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, that blood is sprinkled on you 
you receive the benefits of what it is that he has done. That picture and 99 others are pictured when we take the Lord's Supper together. Here in just a moment, we're going to distribute the elements and we're going to celebrate together. Before we do, let me give you just a couple of instructions that will help us as we worship in this way. Um, first of all, one of the questions we get asked a lot of times is, do you have to be a member to participate in the Lord's Supper here? You don't have to be a member here of this church, but this is the thing that we emphasize over and over again. The Bible says that you must be in Christ. You must have repented of your sins, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe you need to have been biblically baptized in order to partake of this together. The Bible says that even for us believers, we need to examine ourselves so that we not participate in an unworthy manner and bring condemnation onto ourselves. In this act of worship, we remember all of what this is teaching. The sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the blood that was shed for us. So here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to uh, have us bow, I'll close our eyes here for just a second. I want to ask you to spend some time in silent prayer, confessing sin, examining your heart, and then in just a moment, I'll lead us in prayer and we'll begin. Oh, Father, we are a sinful people, but we are so thankful we rejoice now. We will rejoice forever of what you have done to bring us to you, O oh God. We have sinned individually. We have sinned as groups. We have sinned as married couples, as families, and Lord, even us corporately as a church. We have fallen short we have sinned in ways that we have committed sin. We have sinned in ways that we have failed to do what you've called us to do. Our God, and we ask for forgiveness. Please, oh God, look on us with mercy. We know that the blood of Christ gives us eternal salvation. But Lord, we want close relationship with you. And so God, we confess our sins and ask for your mercy to be on us. As we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus here in this time, please, God, I pray that we will truly worship in spirit and in truth by remembering what he has done. We ask this through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Atonement and Holiness. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.